Hello, this is producer Pete, welcoming you to the third part of our Faces of War trilogy. We've heard about the assassin who triggered the first great conflict of modern times. We've heard from the woman who, with great but understated bravery, reports from the front line. Now it's time to hear from a soldier. A man who rose through the ranks to become one of the world's most elite fighting troops. And then renounced war and killing. This is a specially extended show. You won't hear its like on conventional media. Please share it far and wide. Live and uncensored. Uncensored. Special forces are the ninjas of modern warfare. Wutai! And if you think their activities are confined to war zones such as Iraq or Afghanistan, wake the hell up. Officially, America's special forces operate clandestine missions in 60% of the world's nation. Are you kidding me? 60%? Britain's SAS, the Special Air Service, is the model on which other countries' special forces are based. Yes, yeah, suck at Navy SEALs and Delta Force. Right down to the selection process. It lasts for five months and is so demanding it has a 90% fail rate. One man, though, who didn't fail is Mr. Ben Griffin, and he's here with us tonight. Intelligent listening for dangerous minds. This is Latopia. Latopia after dark. After dark. After dark. You've trained to be an SAS warrior, the best soldier killer ever created. In the dead of night, you become the front lines with the entire weight of the world's most powerful military ever at your back. But then something happens. You kill one too many. You start feeling dehumanized. You drop out of the machine and become a what? A peace activist? Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ian. What's it like to have another human being in your crosshairs and, uh, and to pull the trigger? Well, you know, <clears throat> that's a strange thing, Ian, because straight away you've highlighted one of the misconceptions of, of warfare. Um, <clears throat> There's a, there's a huge difference between what actually goes on and what the public think goes whoa, on. Whoa, whoa, hold on, back it up there, Tiger. Now, Pete prepared for this show by watching or, or playing what uh, uh, Call of Duty for about six Slight hours. Slight exaggeration. Yeah. Let, let's 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 go with that. Yeah, concept six, for six a bit. seven. Okay, right. I I I prep for the show by watching uh, uh, three straight episodes of uh, Strike Back: Shadow Warfare, which I, you might be familiar with. On, uh, I'm on not Sky familiar TV. with that show. Okay, no. well, I don't want to spoil the plot for you because I'm sure you'll find it. But the way that seems to go, um, I, and again, you know, spoiler alert, uh, it goes sort of torture from which we get the intel, then we have a night raid followed by a firefight, then a car train helo crash, uh, then we have a fist bump, a stiff drink, and we shag like a hot KSB agent. And we wake up, and the guy we seize during the night raid gives us more intel, and we start the whole sequence again, only this time we crash a boat into a skyscraper. You're saying that it doesn't go down like that? No, it doesn't go down like that, but I suppose one of the first things that we should, we should sort of look into is um, the difference between reality and film. Uh, you know, I take it this is a film or a TV this show. Is a, this is a regular TV show. TV I think show. it's in its third. Uh, I think it's in its third or fourth series. My wife calls it interchangeable manhunk. <laughs> is um, is that anyone within the military gets a very narrow view of what's going on, because the tasks within the military are uh, compartmentalized into smaller tasks. So within a film, you might see 
the guys doing the surveillance, the guys doing the raid, the guys doing the torture, you know, the guys making the decisions. Okay. But actually, in, in reality, those are, those are separate jobs. Okay, wait, but I'm 16, let's say, and I want to join the armed forces. This is, you're saying this is, this is not what happens? I don't get to be like, you know, James Bond licensed to kill and just parachute me into a country and I just get to drink and shag and shoot people and fist bump my friends and go home? When I was a kid, it was the... Uh, I, I don't know if you have them in the States, but we, we used to have these very small comic books called the Commando comic books. You know, they might be 60 pages long. And, oh, and we just had our father's rifles right. and, and handguns. But yeah, go on. But there'd be a story in there basically involving some plucky British commandos taking on some Germans or taking on some Japanese. And the Germans and the Japanese were always stereotyped so that the Japanese would have the, the little round glasses, you know. And right. And, but, so that's how we were sort of misled into believing what it was like to be in the military. And I suppose... What our children are facing today is a much more sophisticated version of that with your Call of Duty video games yeah. and, your, and your TV programs. But the reality of soldiering hasn't really changed much in the sense that, well, for a start, long periods of boredom. You know, there's long periods of time when nothing happens. But also the day-to-day -day life of a soldier, I'm talking about an infantry soldier, is one of hardship. You know, it's one of being cold, wet, hot, hungry, thirsty, carrying huge weights on your pack. Um, you know, there's not much glamour involved in it. Wow. Yeah, that's not like strike force at all. I, I presume you're actually talking for all the forces in the world. We're not talking just British or American forces. I suppose my experience is within the British military, but, you know, I, I think there are things that are common throughout armies around the world. Okay, well, uh, if we can get to your particular specialty, um, I mean, SAS, this is elite forces. What, what was your role in a tactical assault team? That can change on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, one of the tasks I was trained for was uh, explosive method of entry, which means to use explosives to get into someone's house. Uh, another role I was trained in was to use a long-range shotgun to take out cars if they're trying to flee a the scene. A long-range shotgun? Yeah, it's kind of like a shotgun, but about twice the length. So what is your sort of blast radius? I'm not sure what the blast radius is. No, I mean, is, but, uh, you know what I mean? Like with a shotgun, it sprays out so you can catch yeah, birds and things, but a lo with a longer... A, a longer range. So, so it's I'm only familiar with a sawed-off shotgun because <laughs> the neighborhoods I lived in in the city. Yeah, and the, and the bank jobs used to do <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, a, lo a long-range shotgun has a longer barrel, okay. and also the sh it, it doesn't have um, like a classic shotgun sh uh, cartridge that splits. It, it's got a solid shot that can travel distance. Okay. Um, and so it's used to, to fire rounds, into, usually into vehicles, uh, from a helicopter. Okay. Do you, do you have, like, a tip for an aspiring long-range shotgun user? <laughs> no. no. Ben's the wrong no, guy to ask like that. that, really. Don't you think? Okay. I was just, yeah, he's... <laughs> Hello. I'm Eric Beck-Rubin, hardcore, out-of-control book enthusiast, inviting you to listen to a new show here on Latopia called Burning Books. Every three weeks, we put out a new podcast on a single book. It could be a recent debut, a classic, fiction, nonfiction, and everything in between. The idea is to explore what lies at the heart of great books, books that try to be great but don't quite make it, as well as, now and then, books that are irredeemably bad. So check out our archive shows on Latopia, and we'll look forward to having you join us for our next podcast. Burning Books, exclusively from Latopia.com. What brought you to originally uh, join the military, the armed service? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a big question. 
because I don't think there's a straight. Well, we don't ask small ones here on Latopia yeah, after dark. Good. We go right for the jugular. Yeah. No, I don't think there's a there's an easy short answer to that. You're talking about the poverty draft. You know, um, within the United Kingdom, we have something similar. It's not so overt. But um, whilst I was serving in the military, most of the voices you would hear, most of the accents would be Welsh, Scottish, North of England, Irish, West Country. You know, it's quite rare to hear someone from the southeast of England. So that kind of tells us that people are joining the military from less affluent parts of the country. Uh, so you've got a similar thing going on in the UK military that you've got in the US. But also there's, there's a lot of other complex issues going on. You mentioned about family Family ties. Yeah, what about the officer class? Is the officer class, are you going to find some, uh, some uh, posh accents? The officers within the British Army, for example, you know, there'd be a higher percentage of people who went to public school, who went to you know, private fee-paying schools. Is that because of education? I think it's because of tradition. Or tradition. People yeah. are sort of grandfathered in. Well, n no. The British Army traditionally recruits its officers from the public schools. Okay. Um, the people who do join from your comprehensive schools... Um, actually, a lot of them try to affect the accent of the public schoolboy. Oh, so they uh, can rise through the ranks. But also, conversely, I know guys who were from public schools who joined the lower ranks who try to affect working-class accents. So it works both ways. You know, okay. It, there's a role, you know, you're trying to play a role there, you know. According to a 2004 study from the Pentagon, one in eight of all Iraq veterans suffer from post-traumatic stress. Um, you yourself have, have had experience with post-traumatic stress. What are the feelings of that? What is it like to have? Um, it's a complex issue. I mean, myself and quite a few veterans actually in America, who I'm in touch with a lot of veterans in America, we don't even like to call it post-traumatic stress disorder. What, what is For the, us, post-traumatic stress disorder would be something you got from being in a plane crash or, no, or a I car a, crash. Yeah, I've, uh, I know people who have post-traumatic stress disorder from nothing to do with the military. Yeah, and, and the, the psychological damage or the psychological effect of, of being in the military is, is something much more complex than post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, for example, when you join the military, you go through, especially if you're in an infantry unit or a special forces unit, you go through a period of brainwashing or sort of, you know, indoctrination, enculturation, which changes the function and the way that you think and also the way you react to things. Now, this has a profound effect on the, on the psyche. This is similar to, for a long time, they were using, uh, I think up until World War, World War II or even Vietnam, that you would shoot at targets that looked like targets, but now you're shooting at, you know, at, at pictures of the enemy. Uh, and, and then with, again, back to the sort of the video game model, you're trained now to actually shoot people rather than targets is that part of the brainwashing yeah it's part of it i mean, I mean it's a brainwashing is a pretty well, tra you know, training brainwashing let's, let's are, you talking, are, you term, but, um, are you talking about desensitization are you talking about desensitization it's it's more than that it's desensitization yes but also dehumanization and a lot of people talk about how when you join the military they dehumanize the enemy but they also dehumanize the soldier it's it's a two-way process so yeah so so when someone joins the military and goes through military training they're indoctrinated enculturated, dehumanized, and then you put that person from a period of training, usually about six months, into a hierarchical organization where they have to obey orders, any order that comes down. Now, you get people who question orders every now and again, but when it actually comes to the crux, you obey those orders. So you're putting someone into a hierarchical situation where there is no freedom of choice. And then you take that hierarchical organization and you put it into the chaos of war, where quite often nothing makes sense. Things that happen are irrational. Now, once you've gone through that, you've gone through that indoctrination, that enculturation, you've, you've lived under that, that hierarchical system, 
And also, let's not forget the other pressure, which is the peer pressure, which is like a horizontal pressure. Right. The, the pressure from your buddies and your colleagues, and then put that into the chaos of war where nothing actually makes any sense. It's all irrational. Right. And the only thing you know are the people who have your back. Right. And you don't want to go against them. Now. And suddenly the order comes down in the midst of this chaos, and your brain has been reduced to a sort of putty where they push a button and out comes a bullet. Now, if, if you go through those different components, uh, you are going to be affected by that. And so when people say, oh, you've got PTSD, um, I don't think that truly explains what's going on. No, you know, it's, a, it's an It's a lot point. more complex, and there's a lot more components to it. Now, when I first got out of the military, I went to see a mate of mine who had been in the Falklands 20 years before I got out. Um, and he took one look at me and said, you've got PTSD. He uses that term. I don't use that term. I said, what do you mean I've got PTSD? I feel fine. He said, if you've been through what you've been through and you haven't got PTSD, you're a psychopath. And I actually agree with that. You know, yeah. what we're seeing is we're seeing people go through a dehumanizing uh, process of military training, and then we're putting them into this hierarchical situation, and also where this massive amount of horizontal peer pressure, and then we're putting them into this irrational, um, a further irrational situation, which is war and immoral. And people are coming out the other side of that with a different take on things. They've been enlightened to. What's really going now, is on? Part of, is part of this that warfare has become become more sophisticated in the sense that the soldiers are being trained to obey orders better? Or has this something that is, that's existed throughout history, that all warriors will come back from combat uh, with... Or, or because maybe it was, I mean, if you want to go back to Roman times, because it was hand-to-hand -hand fighting, people were less inclined to do it, or they, or, or it was more visceral, so you couldn't, you didn't get a, a command to push a button and suddenly a whole village is flattened. I mean, you raise a couple of points there. For a start, um, well, keep in mind, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, sure. The, the whole, no, the whole let's, let's have a look through it. So, all I've done is played Call of Duty and watched <laughs> Strike Back, so yeah. I'm, I'm coming into this. Well, let's have a look at two things there. One thing you're talking about, the psychological effect of being in the military and going to war. Now, I think that is, there's always been a psychological effect. If we look back to Homer's Iliad, um, some people see that as a story about a guy coming back from the military, coming back from war, and dealing with his psychological torment of, of going through that. So I think we can safely say that there's always been a psychological effect of being in the military and, and going to war. Okay. Now, the other aspect that you're talking about is, is how we train our soldiers. Now, um, there's a very interesting book by a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, this He's not Dave a peace Grossman. activist in any way, is it? Yeah, I Dave agented Grossman, that yeah. book. I Isn't that strange? Actually, oh, no, wow. he, he's written a number of books. Yeah. I agented he's one of them. Of yeah. Stop te teaching our kids to kill. Oh. Is, is that the one you mean? Wow. Okay, well, no, on killing is the one I'm thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in On Killing, uh, Grossman... Shameless name. I, I, Shameless. Sorry, I had to say that because <laughs> it's such a coincidence, actually. We had to. He co-wrote a book called Stop Teaching Our Kids to Kill. About video games, about video games and so I, I actually yeah. represented the other author. So, I, yeah, we can talk about that later if you want to. We can talk about that later if you want to. Sure. Well, in his book on killing, he, he explains how, um, for example, during the American Civil War, uh, on the battlefields of Gettysburg, they dug up the rifles that were used, you know, that were discarded. Yes. And there were nine, ten... They packed them because you don't have the... You don't have the will. People do not want to shoot each other, so they would just pretend to fire and then pack another yeah. bullet on top and then pack another so, bullet on top. So they were top. packing the bullets yeah. in, going through the motions, pretending to fire, then packing another bullet on top, you know, and they found 10, 12, yeah, yeah, yeah. 12 rounds. And, uh, 
you know, I, I've read studies where they re- estimate that only 10% of people in the First World War actually tried to shoot someone, you know? Yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that as well. And that the, the, that 10% that did were split between the real heroes who were like, we were going to go and get this and save our friends. And they believed in the, and the, the other, the other 5% were just straight up psychopaths. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you find that, uh, also people find other tasks to do, you know, to avoid doing the shooting. Right. You know, right. I'll load up your magazine for you whilst you do the shooting. Uh, you know, I'll keep a lookout, you know, I'll pass a message. I'll make a cup of tea, you right, know, right, all right. sorts of things. But anyway, so, so the military's seen this as a problem. So basically what's so ha- what we've seen in the 20th century is a sophistication of the training processes to ensure that there is a high percentage of people willing to kill. So when we get to the end of the 20th century, we are looking at 95%. Within infantry units, 95% how, how of people have they are willing that? to kill. How, how have they done that? I think it's through a process of... Um, well, uh, Ian mentioned it earlier, that the targets have changed. So uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think during the, the build-up to the First World War and during the training of the soldiers during the First World War, they were sh- shooting at round targets. Yeah. Now, post-World War II, we get within the British military, figure 11s and figure 12s, which look like sort of human... Mannequins. Yeah, well, yeah. they're sort of like cardboard cutouts. Okay, yeah. Um, and then, you know, whilst I was training in the military, um, we were using dummies, you know, with clothes on and with, right. with hair, you know, so they were three-dimensional, you know. Right, right, right. So you're getting people used to shooting at... So it's um, essentially, it's become more sophisticated, the training. They're turning you into a type of putty and then squeezing you into the pyramid... What what strikes me as the the real like the frightening part is that the action on the other end when the command comes down it can be to push a button on a drone and then the whole village gets flattened and you don't the consequence of the one action that they're they've now made you willing to do can be quite severe. Yeah. So once you're through that machine, once you're ground through that machine, you come out the other side. You you've still you've been conditioned to be this thing, and suddenly you're like, what have I just been through? What have I what have I and yeah. that is that feeling of going through that process, PTSD. Well, let, let's just take it back one step because something else that happens within military training is the language is used. Uh, so, for example, no, no. Well, no. yeah, collateral damage. Yeah, that's an example of it. But for example, when I was training in the infantry, we were never told to kill that person. We were told to aim at the centre of the mass. Okay. Right now, think about aim at the centre of the mass. You know. Uh, all tar- you know, targets will fall when hit. There's no mention of human. There's no mention of shooting in the chest. It's the centre of the mass. You know, so you're using these terms which aren't don't specifically it becomes almost a kind of legalese. Yeah, yeah. So they don't specifically elaborate on what that what that actually means. You know, um, so the, the language is very clever, and um, I actually think that that's that's not a coincidence that the, the language has been developed. Over no, it's time. a euphemism, isn't it, that, that leads yeah, like, to a dehumanisation, really. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'd, I'd like to just ask about your personal experience. Sure. Like, when when you went to Iraq, uh, what what were your what were your hopes for the mission? Did you believe in the Did you believe in what was going on? No, I deployed to Iraq in two thousand and five. I've been in the military since nineteen ninety seven, and. You know, when you go through this, this training process, initial training process, and you get guys come out the other end of it after six months of training, they're psychos. You know, all they want to do is go to war and kill someone. But the, the problem the military's got is that over time, these 19-year-olds, 18-year-olds mature. Right. 
and also the the distance from the training means that oh no you start to grow a conscience well that know. must that must be stopped <laughs> you may not develop a spirit sir but these things start to happen you know people do get older you know i think it was the the nazis who who realized that um the, the you know the ideal age to send someone into combat was sort of 17 18 you know, where they're full of testosterone, yeah. they don't think they're going to be Young, killed. Young, dumb, and full of calm. It, yeah, that sort of attitude, you know. Um, so, <clears throat> so my attitude in, say, 1997 compared to 2003, completely different, you know. Yeah. And that's six years, and that's a, that's a developmental phase of your life. Yeah, but I would say, though, that in a similar way that the alcoholic and the drug addict um, don't fully develop I don't know if you, if you know any yeah, alcoholics yeah, yeah. or drug addicts, but say, no, say, say someone's... No. Never, never met, never, I've heard about them. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some, yeah, in the street. But um, the drug addict, for example, say someone starts taking, you know, heroin at the age of 17, uh, their development is stunted. Yeah. And I think that's similar with the military as well. I think our development is stunted. You know, we don't develop in the same way that people from outside of the military develop in terms of our conscience, maturity, and all these other things. You well, know. They don't want you growing in the soil. They want you growing hydroponically with nutrients that they feed you so that you turn into this, you, you turn into the tree that they want. It's almost, it's genetic, it's genetic engineering or genetic modification. They're taking the sort of the nature nurture debate and saying, no, we're going to nurture you and we're going to turn you into what we like. And occasionally they get an anomaly like you they obviously didn't want you to turn out and to be to be a peace activist that's not part of the, that's not part of their whole thing how did you was there one particular incident that caused you to kind of fall out of this system no you know we can go back to talking about me in a minute but I, I you know I talked to a lot of veterans I talked to a lot of veterans who would never say they were peace activists um, but if you listen to most guys who've been in in warfare in combat situations in operational theaters and you listen to their stories, you listen to what they're saying, and you see through the bravado, you see through, the, through that, what they're, what they're telling you is an anti-war message. What they're telling you is... This was horrible. This, yes. And, um, and I, I find that consistent amongst the, most of the veterans I meet. And I think it's all about time. I think that soldiers are dehumanised during their training, and mm. that dehumanisation continues through their service. Well, here's, here's, and that... People develop at, at different rates, and for some guys, it might not be until they're 50 or 60 when they're, they're that disconnected from the military, that disconnected from those people. When they have, that they enough, can, when they have enough perspective to yes. look back and see what happened, there's and like then, a, an epiphany of like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? Exactly. And how did how did it come to that? And that's when they break down and become drug addicts and alcoholics. So they don't know how to deal with no, it. And worse, there's not a culture actually, that says. Because if you look at the suicide rate of veterans, it's shameful, both in the UK and the US. But they, they but they're largely yeah, and it's becoming higher as the process gets more sophisticated. You've you've had the experience of talking to a lot of veterans, a lot of people who have seen action and who are suddenly coming to realize whether you call it post traumatic stress disorder, or what they're really real, having the realization like, what did I just do? I haven't had the experience of talking to lots of veterans. I've got you. And I'm asking if it's not... I, I, yeah. I'd like to know what you went through, what you saw over there. You blew open doors. Yeah. You fired long-distance shotguns at people. I'm asking because I think people need to see the emotional consequences on it rather than the abstract. Yeah, I, yeah, I've sure. got lots of figures I can yeah, show yeah. here. There are 120,000... 
uh, pe- civilians dead in Iraq since the war began. That's you don't hear you hear every time an American serviceman, every time a British serviceman dies, that makes the papers and there's a parade down, uh, you know, and they, and they throw a parade, they tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. But those are you know 130,000 stories. Those are 100, and those are civilians. So I, I'm I'm asking yeah, yeah. you, wh- wh- what happened? What happened, man? Yeah. So um, I suppose. <laughs> You'd have to, or I'd have to think about... Just start with, there I was. Yeah, well, well there, there I, I was, was, you know, there I was, um, about to deploy to Iraq. And this was a different deployment to other deployments. I'd been to Northern Ireland, I'd been to Macedonia, Afghanistan. But when I deployed to Iraq in 2005, we already knew about Abu Ghraib. We, we already knew that there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. Right, so... so so the, Afghanistan could almost be justified because the people who had, who you know, well, who had bombed America, they were Saudis. They were tangentially. They were, they were, they were Saudis. Yeah. They were Saudis. Okay, but they were Saudis on the plane. They fled to Afghanistan. Well, they didn't fled anywhere. They they died in. <laughs> No, but I'm saying, okay, we can go into the various conspiracies, but in the public mind, you could kind of go, I'm just talking like Joe Normal, sitting back watching TV, you can kind of go, yeah, I guess Afghanistan kind of makes sense, because that's where, uh, that's where, like, the main guy is, you know, that's where Osama is, so that's got to be it. But then when they went to Iraq, and all, it all started to fall apart, then... At the beginning, it's like you're not supporting the troops if you doubt, if if you yeah. dare to question, you know, why we're going, you know. And then you have, th- I mean, I was infuriated. I went on all the anti-war marches and all this because that just seemed ridiculous. How do you, how do you feel about ridiculous. that? How can you know, they get about away with this? Argument about not supporting the troops. I mean, that it's fair enough to have a discussion and have a debate and do democratic process, but once troops are deployed. You stop talking and you support our boys out there because they're risking their lives for you. That's a strong argument. I think it's a nonsense argument. Um, in fact, I was at a lecture the other night. Sorry to, you know, God damn it, Peter. Go, go away from the personal. <laughs> no, he's time, right, but, though. No, but I, 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 can, I can talk about the personal stuff. But just talking about that, um, on the eve of the First World War, Emily Pankhurst, the, the mother of the um, suffragette movement, threw a rock into it through the window of Downing Street and was arrested. The next morning, once war de- was declared, she stopped all activism and said, during the war, you know, this is more important, this takes precedent. Really? I'm going to support the troops. I didn't know that. Her niece, her niece, and I, f- I think it might have been Sylvia Pankhurst, I'll be corrected on this, was the opposite. And she was an, uh, an ardent anti-war activist throughout the whole of the First World War. You know, so there are, there are these different viewpoints in all this, but... I would say that when we're faced with this argument, it, it is a nonsense argument. To say that, that you can support the troops without tacitly supporting the war that they're fighting. I, I can't, can't say separate, separate the two things. things. This, is, this is interesting. How can you separate we them? Had, last week we had a ta- uh, an American war tax resistor, also, oh, great, also yeah. a friend of mine, and he basically said, you know what, I'm going to find a way where I don't have to pay any taxes because I'm not paying for this shit. And his business card said tax resistors we're not paying for it. Had a picture of a, of, a, of a fighter plane. Now, Pete put him the question, are you not supporting the troops? That's a traitorous you know, take that most American public would regard. And he's like, actually, I'm not. It's, they might be wonderful people, but they decided to take part in a project that I don't support. And so I, the only thing I could do is kind of you know, say, well, I'm not going to contribute towards it to save my conscience. Mm. And so it's actually quite brave because the IRS is after him for thirty grand or and this kind of thing. There's the the argument of whether you're gonna whether you're supporting the troops or whether you're supporting the war. But I'd like to I, I 
I want to know what you went. I want to know what you went through. Sure. So we've already talked about the the sort of context in which I went to Iraq. So so you know we we found out that there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. You know that Abu Ghraib. You knew you were going into under false pretenses with like a, <laughs> with the military that, yeah, that was compromised. But then there's a moral. contradiction within all of us. So at the time I was still a professional soldier, and I saw Iraq as another opportunity. You know, on on another level. You know, this is a chance to go into combat, you know, yeah. to, you know, to have that experience. To, get experience, come back and yeah. move up in the ranks. And yeah. Um, so, so there was the, there was a contradiction going on in there. Um, and I think it was when I got to Iraq and actually saw what was going on. Now, uh, most of the British experience was in, in Bajra, in the, in the south of Iraq. I was based in Baghdad, um, inside an American Is that an Anwar province? province? Is that an Anbar province? Anbar. I Anbar, think sorry. I think Baghdad is next to Anbar province. Anbar province is just uh, I'm an west. American. We don't yeah. know geography. I think it's just west and north. Anbar right. province is west of, of Baghdad. Okay. I, over a period of time, everything I saw in Iraq led me to come to the conclusion that this was, this was wrong, you know, what we were doing over there. So being based in Baghdad, these contractors, these civilian contractors, sort of mer mercenaries, they were everywhere. Absolutely everywhere, driving all over these, the place. These are, these are American. Um, way better these, these are black, Blackwater boys. Well, it doesn't matter. Well, some were Blackwater, some were, you know, the, there were a hundred firms operating in Iraq at the time. Some were, some were British, there were Gurkhas over there, there were Colombians Jeez. over there. You know, we shouldn't put this on to just purely onto the Americans, you know. Um, this was a sort of uh, a joint enterprise conducted by... Britain, America, and, and a whole so lot of corporations. So, if you happen to own or have shares in one of those corporations, this is a gold mine, isn't it? Well, that's what I could see: is that that there was a lot of money to be made, you know. And this was different. This was different to Northern Ireland. This was different to Macedonia. Different to Afghanistan. You could see that there was something else going on. Yeah. It wasn't just about peacekeeping. The or, feeling on the ground was like it was febrile. It was. It, I, I likened it at the time. I remember thinking at the time, this must. This must be what it was like to be in sort of the gold rush, you know, sort of San Francisco, wow. 19, oh, really? 1848. You felt, you felt you know, like there was, there was, there was money a mad, to be made. There was money. Well, there was flying over in cargo planes and they haven't accounted for half of it. Yeah. So, so it, there, there was, was a feeling atmosphere. on the ground of like, like, oh, I can make it rich here. There were, you could sort of, you could smell it almost, you know, the, the sort of febrile atmosphere of but what as, was going but on. But as someone who's officially with the SAS, which is an elite force, you couldn't take part in that sort of land grab. No, we, we weren't there to take part in that land grab. But you could feel that everybody else was, or all the superiors, all the mercenaries, everyone who came in, yeah. all the oil contractors who were built, the people who were doing construction on, on the city, they just blew up. Like Halliburton, all that. You, I, I see, that kind of blows my mind, because that wasn't something that, you know, that I would consider. You think, oh, you know, there's, there's enemy forces surrounding me. No, it's a land grab, and everybody's out to make some money. That's crazy. That is the, every day you could feel that, you know, you could, and you could see it. How could you, what, please give me an example. Well, you could see it because you've got all these private contractors driving around, driving all these people in suits around, you know. These people aren't driving around for no reason, you know. And you could just sense that, that this was a, this was a, a heist almost. Because that's not how it played out on the TV sets of the world. It, it played out very much on like, here are these poor impoverished Iraqis, you know, here are the insurgents that are, you know, that are holding them and fighting. And these are our brave boys in, in blue who are going over there and fighting the good fight and trying to bring democracy to the Middle East. And then you land on the ground. And it's just like, dude, who are these guys in suits and all these flash SUVs going around with these private contractors and these amazing weapons? Just like, who, wh where did they come from? What's going <laughs> Who gave them the order? Yeah. And that just blows my mind. Yeah. 
the feel, and you could feel it. You, you could knew. Feel it. You could feel you it. You knew. So meanwhile, you're blowing doors off of. They say, go, you know, find this insurgent, somebody who's, you know, go find one of the baddies in this house. Now, you don't know who's actually in that house. Your commander knows or thinks he knows. Or you've got someone's been tortured at Abu Ghraib to get the intel so you can do the night raid and have the firefight. So this is the strike back script. But and you blow the door, but you don't actually know what's going on or who these people are personally. And, and you know what? I'm not even sure if our commanders... <laughs> you know, really knew what was going on. I mean, the thing is within the military is everyone in, in the military likes to think they know exactly what's going on. And, you know, we, we've got, you know, we're on the inside. We know what's going on. Um, but I actually think about, you know, the, the operations we're doing in Iraq. Now, it's not just about torturing someone in Abu Ghraib. There's no, I, the intel comes in various forms. I, right. I, I understand that. And, and a lot of the way that intel comes in is people pay for it. Now, Part of the money grab. I know where the people live. If, if you're in Iraq, if you're, if, you, if you're a Baghdad citizen in 2005, high unemployment, right? Uh, there's no electricity, there's no water, you've got a family, you need to provide. And someone comes up to you and says, do you know anything about the insurgency? Do you know anything about Al-Qaeda? Do you know anything about sort of any remnants of the Ba'athists? And you think to yourself, well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and someone offers you $200. And maybe the first time you have got a bit of intel, you know, right. you kind of heard that there's a guy down the street who was involved in all that sort of stuff. And maybe it pays off, and then they come to you again. Now, you don't have what any intel, do? so either you're going to go find it and keep your, or you're going to go, you know what, this intel I got's even better, so I want two grand, and uh, yeah, it's uh, Joe the barber, uh, he's a bad yeah. guy, because he ripped me and off I, two years ago, and it becomes this... I often wonder about um, how many sort of personal scores or yeah. feudal things that we settled, you know, through these... Through these For sure the way that we were collecting intelligence. In 2005, so you land in 2005, when was the time between when you landed and when you saw action? Uh, you know, we were sh straight into it, so... Um, Did you get a, a sleep and a shower and a meal? Oh yeah, of course, yeah. I, I think we were probably doing, you know, th three at the time, three jobs a week, maybe four jobs a week, you know. A job meaning what? A, going out in the night and detaining people, you know. That was essential, I mean, because the SAS, you were, night raids are a big, are kind of a big deal now. They're very in vogue, yeah. Uh, along with the drone strikes and whatnot, and even past the, since the war has ended, it still continues uh, to this day. I mean, there were thirty-eight people who died yesterday uh, in um, in Iraq, and that, I mean, in any other city, that would be front page news. Yeah, and and here it's like kind of buried on the international section, page three. But that's everyone that the British and American troops were fighting. The sort of the, the the Sunnis in in uh, in Basra and what it and Fallujah it's been retaken. Now that the Americans have left, it's it's essentially been retaken. What did we do? Well, well I, you did know, we accomplish any good in your opinion by going over there? No, no, not at all. Um, but I don't think our intention was ever to do that. What do you believe our intention was? I mean, just well, being on the know, ground. Yeah, I mean. It, I think with any war, there are, there are a thousand motivations as to why we go there. There's a thousand players. So, you know, you could simplify it and say, well, there's the oil company. You know, they want access to the oil fields. Now, that's true. That's definitely true, because I, I actually sat in on a, a Shell shareholder meeting in 2005, 2006, after I got out, and they were bragging about their new um, sort of discoveries in Iraq or their new acquisitions in Iraq, you know. So that, that's definitely true. But that... To, to, to leave it at that and say it was all about oil would be to deny the true nature of what was going on. You know, you've got politicians who want to build their 
status. Much as you did as a, as a soldier. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, you know, you've got the likes of Blair and Bush who, who thought that, the, you know, Blair often talks about, the, you know, how he admired Churchill as this wartime leader, you know, and I think yeah, Blair did, wanted to be that person, yeah. you know. So, you, so you've got the politicians, the ego of the politicians. Then you've got the arms company. Now, an arms company is always going to make a lot of money out of war because you're using their, <laughs> their product, you know, yeah. and it needs replacing. Yeah. Then you've got the media. And the media likes a war. They yeah, get, they know, know how to cover a war. Well, you know, and they're also the, you get supervised now. It's not like you have rogue reporters running around to you. There's like, no, you will get a military escort, and you will see what we show you. But it's still just as profitable whether you've got a military escort or not. So it, the media hasn't really lost out in terms of um, that their their sort of access to what's well, on going a on. Level, been they lost a lot of reporters. On a personal level, the media they lost a lot of reporters. But again, those are just foot soldiers. Yeah, but in terms of in terms of their profit, it probably doesn't matter whether they're embedded or not. Right. They're, they're still making the same amount of money out of out of the war, you know. Um, so you've got all these hundreds and, and thousands of of interests that push us towards this point where we go to war. And some of those interests have got more power, and they, they've got more say. And some of those interests haven't got much say. But that's how we get there, you know. It's not just one interest that, right. that gets us it's, there. Again, you know? it's a complicated situation. That yeah, I so. Still I'm, I'm sorry to go back to this, but I, I really, I, uh, there I was. Take us through, take yeah. us through one particular episode that at least yeah. that, that helped, that sort of helped you form in your mind. Like yeah. this is a, this is a massive foobar. Yeah. I mean, I suppose for me, it was a, a cumulative effect rather than a, than one incident. Because say you go into someone's house one night and you've been given this guy's name, but that guy isn't there, but there are some other males in the house and you detain those males because they must be guilty because they're in this house and we've been told that this house is where the insurgents are. And already you're using the language by referring yeah. to them as males. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, four, yeah. There, interesting. Were four, yeah there were four dudes well, in the house. Why, why, why don't we just call them There were four men. Well, no, they were men. There were four men in the house. Yeah. Um, and so you would take these people in and, uh, you know... I mean, there, was me there were many things that were impacting on me. So on the one hand, you've got this febrile culture that's going on and you can see that this is all about money and, you, and, you, and you're starting to think, wait a minute, are, are we just here to facilitate this? You know, are we to make this easier for you? You know, are we going out every night to do this, to make the place calmer so that you can take more out of it, you know? Right. Uh, but then the act actually doing the job, you know, going into these people's houses every night, you know, I'd, I'll explain what we were doing, you know. So, so imagine it's 2 a.m. You live in Bethnal Green, right? So well, you're in your flat. It's a big place. It's a big place. There's hundreds of thousands of people live there. Uh, my wife, like, seriously, I'm trying my best to, to come home tonight. <laughs> so so you're, in, you're in your home. It's 2 a.m. You're fast asleep. You know, just to make you've got your kids next door, you, you and your wife, and, you know, maybe your extended family's in the house as well. And all of a sudden, there's a huge explosion. And before you've even worked out what's going on, what's happening to you, the house is full of dust. And your ears are ringing. And it's still dark because all the lights are off. And as you're sort of like becoming awake to, to what's going on, there are 20 armed men. And they've infiltrated your whole house. And they're in every room. And you're being dragged out of your bed and your wife is being dragged into one room and your kids are being dragged into one room and you're being dragged into another room right. and then you get interrogated, starting to be interrogated. Right. Who the fuck are you? Right. You know? What's your name? What are you doing here? Blah, 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 blah. You know, a, a brutal and, interrogation. And if somebody's kind of bleary-eyed... But, but and whilst yeah. that's happening, 
The rest of us are going through your house and we are ransacking it. We are turning over all these shelves, we're pulling open all these drawers. Those computers, we're just taking off the tables, we're dumping them down in the corridor. We're going through, money, great, we'll put that in the pile. You know, phones, we're taking everything that you could possibly, be, could be important to You're you. You're like a militarized man with a van. You're just coming, your removal's coming. We're like the coming. bailiffs, we're like the bailiffs. So any paperwork we see that looks like it could be important, we take that. So within 20 minutes, half an hour, your kids are completely traumatized. Yeah. Your wife is freaking out. Yeah. You've pissed yourself. Yeah. You're being dragged out the door. We're taking all your possessions as well with us. You're put on a helicopter. You've never been on a helicopter before, right? right? You're being chucked on a helicopter. Your hands are, are cuffed together with plastic so tight that your hands are starting to swell, right? You can't see, you've got these goggles on. You've got these ear, ear things on so you can't hear. You know, you, you've been dragged off. Your family's left at home, right? Your kids are crying. Your, your, your wife's distraught, anything. right? And, and they've got no way of protecting themselves, earning a living, you know? Um, also, in, in Arabic society, that the male within the family is like a hero. And, and you've just been humiliated. Humiliated in front of your family, right? And, and that happens to you. Imagine that happening to you. Imagine you're a child watching that happen to your father. Imagine your wife watching that happen. And just take that, that, just that one part of it, right? And doing that again and again. And I started to look at these kids, I started to look at these women and I started to think, what must they be thinking of us, you know? And as someone who grew up reading stories about how we stopped the Nazis, right? How we, all this nonsense. When it was way more black and it's white. It's actually mortifying, Ben. And you think, who are we? What have we become? What have I become, you know? You're that part, I'm doing this. You're part of that machine. And you know what? It You're at the tippity tip of the spear, my friend. Yeah. At SAS, that's... And it doesn't stop there, because then these guys are taken back. Now, we were talking earlier on about content martialization, right? Yeah. That's when you divide up a, a job into smaller jobs. Now, if we, we take the World War II analogy, what happened with the geno genocide is that a French policeman went into the Jews' house and pulled the Jews out, and he passed them on. And, and those people were put on a train, and they were probably driven by a French train driver. And, it, and then maybe at some point a German train driver took over. And then they turned up at the prison camp and someone took them off the train, took their clothes off and put them in a stripy suit. Then someone else shaved their heads, right? By the time this person's gone through this process, and there's many more components to it, by the time they get to the guy who puts them into the, into the gas chamber, they're no longer a human, right? Now, if that French policeman who took them out of the house in the first place was able to follow them or was a part of the whole process, he would never do it. But he's just driving people from point A to point B. Right, so if, yeah. if we this now look at Iraq, shoes. if we now look at Iraq, we've got people getting the intelligence, right? Now, they're just interacting with, you know, people on the street, you know, in a human sort of scenario. Right. Then you've got the guys doing the surveillance. They're looking at people in their family day. They're sending them going to the, to so the, the shop. So you they're do have, so they're the sending them going to the school. They're right. sending them taking kids. You've got good cop. Right, so they're seeing that part. But then we go in and do the night raid, right? Now, we're, we're seeing the people at the, the, in the sort of shock of capture part of it, right? Now, by the time we take these people back to our base and hand them over to the interrogators, these people are wearing a dish dash, their hands are cuffed, they've got a blindfold on, and they've got the headphones on. What do they look like? What does that image say? Terrorist. What is that image? Terrorist. Yeah. Terrorist. Yeah. Who dressed them like? Who dressed them like the terrorist? Who made them look like the terrorist? Right, he might have been wearing sweats and a... Uh... We, we, we have created that terrorist. <laughs> And by the time you hand them over to the interrogator... They already look. 
They are terrorists, right? And they trust us, right? Just like we trust the guy who does the surveillance, just like he trusts the guy who does the intelligence gathering. So if the guy who does the intelligence gathering says this guy's a terrorist and then the surveillance guy says this guy's a terrorist and then we say this guy's a terrorist, we hand him over and he looks like a terrorist to the torturer, what's he going to think? I was to say. So, and then, as the torturer, you can put one of these 5% psychopaths. You know, maybe there's, yeah. there's someone who's yeah, actually, yeah. there's someone who's doing that who, who maybe that. loves his job. Yeah, but I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if all of them do love their job, you know? No, but, yeah. I, but it, it would be better to put in someone who's a stone-cold psychopath to do that to do that job and you're yeah. certainly out of a pool of 100 you're gonna have two but then but then let's look at uh, popular culture so we've got 24 where I th i've never actually mm. watched it but i've been told that in 24 there are lots of scenes where um where they catch a terrorist and, and they have to torture him to get the oh, information yeah. Out. Oh, yeah. now if that if that is um what the public's perception of of what you do to these people who have captured Right, and and I think that people learn from what they see in in TV oh, a lot. Sure. The the episode of I'm not kidding. I did watch Strike Back with with my lunch. The episode today, the two guys, they kind of you know they're having conversation, they're bantering and this and that, and then they come up and there's a guy strapped to a mattress frame, blindfolded, and they just they're having a conversation about what they ate for dinner last night, and then they pick up the the the, the you know the uh, wires off the car battery and just hook the guy up and just like tell us where he's going to attack next. Yeah, and then they cut back and. They go, oh, that was dirty work. Uh, yeah. So now we have to go and stop this train from leaving Belgium. So, so what so, is happening? So what I'm thinking, though, is, is that with these interrogators and these torture, you know, people who carry out this torture, is they might not be psychopaths. They just think, oh, this is how I behave in this situation. And then let's go back to that hierarchical pressure and that peer pressure and that indoctrination. And we mustn't forget about how powerful those things are, how powerful those pressures are. Uh, on people, and then you, you know, it's easy to see how these things you're, happen. Now, okay, you're saying that it's that it was kind of a combined, uh, the cumulative effect of all these, all the horrors of war that you witnessed, combined with the crazy land grab, money grab, oil grab, and you're in there having been trained, you know, to do a very specific job in a very highly specialized field of violence. Mm. You're saying it was the cumulative effect that eventually sort of kick-started your conscience and pushed you out of the machine to sort of like almost a newborn to come out and go, this was horrible, and then to speak out against it. Mm. But uh, is there, because I know people with PTSD. I have a friend, and it's not combat-related. Re his, uh, his girlfriend was, uh, they, were walking by the, they, were, they were walking along the side of the road. They'd had an argument because they'd run out of gas. Right, and he, this has happened before. They had a shouting, and they went went walking off. And a van from nowhere. She's black. He's white. Came out of nowhere, like purposely, as he describes, came off the came off the road, crossed the median, and just plucked her off the side of the road and knocked her into a ditch. They never caught the guy. It was, you know, in their minds, a clear attack, not an accident. And he was basically on the road, praying for drivers to stop. She's one of my good friends. He says, if it's a beautiful day, he just flips out. Because it was a beautiful day when she got in. No, mm. no clouds in the sky, sun, degrees, mm. you know, California, driving down the 101. Now if it's a beautiful day, it just freaks him out. And mm. you're like, dude, what's wrong? That's what's in his head. Mm. And what's in your head? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a kind of, it's kind of a, I suppose that's kind of a personal question, you know, and, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in my head. You know, there's. Um, I suppose in some ways there's a, there's almost like a constant movie of stuff, you know, going on that's on a sort of replay. Give me a. Uh, you know, so you know, I th you know, I think a lot about those kids and those men and those women, you know, having known what happened to these people afterwards as well. You know, a lot of these guys were were tortured and held in in secret prisons and. You know, I often think about the, those people and the looks on their faces and that when we were when we were doing this stuff to them. You know, yeah. But it, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that happens, and uh, it's cool, man. I'm California. Yeah, yeah. Very touchy feely. Very touchy feely there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I struggle in this culture to just like you know. Can I get a whoop whoop? No, I cannot get a whoop whoop for love or money. Can I get a hug? No. Can I get an emotional response? And you're SAS, man. You wear some tough armor. And I think a lot of, part of the popular um, perception and the misconceptions come because, you know, you shoot a long range shotgun. You can blow off doors. Like, that's super cool, man. You go, yeah, that is super cool. Because we, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're men. And that's, you know, especially if you're, we all remember what it's like to be 17 and to play cowboys and Indians or to play, you know, uh, uh, to play to play the Nazis and the French or whatever you know the, the equivalent is. I'm trying. I, I mean, I, I realize maybe this is hard or, or yeah, maybe yeah. not even appropriate. But here on the Topi After Dark, we're not afraid to ask the tough or stupid questions. I just I want. I'm trying to get under the arm, yeah, uh, under yeah, the yeah, armor. Yeah, sure. And you have taken some off. You founded Veterans for Peace, or the the UK chapter. You go out publicly speaking against not just. Not just the Iraqi war, but war in general. Yeah. And so you've already, you know, it's... Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, um, you know, um, yeah, I, th I think you've hit on something about the sort of British psyche, you know, in, in terms of our sort of... Sorry, it's a bit obvious. Our cold nature, yeah. you know, and, um, but, you know... It's um, not a cold nature, because it's all, ha you're having the same feelings. You're having the same thing as as you know us amphibious wet california hipsters like we have the feelings and if i went through that i would just be a babbling emotional wreck whereas you come from a culture where that's you know that's decidedly not cool and if you see a if you see a psychiatrist you're certainly not going to tell your mates down the pub whereas that's a talking point where i come from right like you go to therapy like yeah hey, who how's your therapist yeah he's pretty good we talked about my dad a lot today so and that's part of the reason pete has me here is to try to like you know, get under the skin of British culture as well. And you're SAS, man. You know, you've come out of the system. And I think you're in a position to, and it's it's crucial. I mean, the, the, there were 38 people killed yesterday. How many were killed in January? 698 civilian casualties in Iraq. Just in January, it's not, the month isn't even half over. Mm. So, and now they're talking about, oh yeah, let's go into, uh, ooh, ooh, what's, what's hot? Because we, we have all these weapons we got to use. These Hellfire missiles are going to go bad. They've got an expiry date. Man, I got a whole lot of eggs about to go off. You all best believe we're having omelets tomorrow. So we're going to Syria. Or, oh boy, we, when, when Bush was reelected in 2008, I have a friend who was a reporter, and he was at the GOP National Convention, right? And when, or not, not the National It was like some party for, on election night in, in Las Vegas. And when Bush won his re-election, I believe it was 2008. Four. Uh, 2004, sorry, that's right. It was 2000, 2004. 
He says everyone in the bar full of, you know, full of people who'd voted Republican, they started chanting, Tehran, Tehran, Tehran. And, and you're like, what? It flipped, that flipped him out. He, yeah. he could not believe that that was what was going on. So you're in that position. You're in that position to, to better than most people, especially because you come from the tippity tip of the spear. We're, I'm not talking to the cook. I'm talking to the guy who blew, blew off the doors. And I'm trying to humanize that. And you're trying to humanize. Yeah. What sticks with you? Yeah, you know, like I say, the, um, you know, a lot of what sticks with me is, is those, you know, those, those night raids, but also some, what, what could be seen as funny things. Yeah, well, good. You know, please, <laughs> give us some a, gallows humour for crying out loud. Load, you know, um, I spent a couple of nights out with an American armoured unit. They're in the tanks, right, you know, and they're sort of backing us up. And we're driving back from a job one night and all the guys have gone back, I think, either by helicopter or, you know, on the quicker vehicles. And we're driving these tanks back down through, back into Baghdad. As you do. And, um, and there's this noise, you know, it's like... And I'm sat in the back. I think I was in a Bradley and I, and I shouted up to the guy driving. I said, what's going on? What's that noise? He goes, oh, it's the lampposts. I go, what do you mean it's the fucking lampposts? And he goes, oh, we're, we're knocking down the lampposts. Stop knocking down the lampposts. <laughs> Stop knocking down the lampposts. <laughs> He goes, we always do this. <laughs> I was sort of banging my head against the, the side of the Bradley going, you know, <laughs> have you not thought of the, the sort of damage that we're doing? Right. I mean, it's each just, lamppost you know, is 30 grand. And they, but, you know, but also, the, these people hate us enough as it is. You know, the, the last thing they, they need is for us to also, as well as, well, this is, as, well as invade their homes, take their, their families away, you, you know, ransack well. their homes. Let's, well, let's knock the well, down the lamppost well, as well. Well, it's, you know. it's in the, you know, it's, it's, it's um, Michael Moore's, uh, in Michael Moore's film, you have, um, you have the guys in the tank blowing, you know, just basically blowing shit up and they're playing, you know, burn motherfucker, burn heavy metal in the, in, in the tank. What are the, what are the differences between the British troops and the American troops on the ground in Iraq? Was there a, a clear cut, like, I mean, aside from the uniforms, was there a different mentality? Well, um, it's an interesting, an interesting discussion this because when we first joined in this joint enterprise with the United States, there was a whole uh, sort of argument put within the British military and within British society that the British army, having all this experience in Northern Ireland and all this other stuff, would be like a break yeah, on I American excesses. Yeah, I remember people you know, saying that, that's right. right. You remember that argument, right, yeah. Well, actually what happened was, is that we were 10% and the American military was 90%. Right. Guess who influenced who, right? <laughs> well, you know, there was definitely some lapdoggery with, uh, with Tony right. Blair. Right, so, I mean, whilst I was in, to, to be fair, um, we did kill less people than our American counterparts. What, per troop? Well, per job, yeah. Per job. So, but per, that's because, per... because our rules of engagement were different. So our rules of engagement were that you had to be faced with lethal force. And for, for a British soldier at that time, that meant that someone had to have a weapon and be pointing it at you. In order to engage. Yeah. So, okay, let's... Or be shot at. So in, right. a, in a night raid, if someone breaks into my house, especially if I'm, you know, in, in, back in the States, if someone breaks into my house and I don't know what's going on, I'm going to reach for my shotgun under the bed and therefore I'm going to get killed? Let's look at the reality of the situation. If someone uses explosives to get into your house at 2 a.m., yeah. unless you are a highly dedicated, highly trained person, you ain't reaching for no shotgun. 
Right. Although we do have some people who, if you knock on the door, they just fire at will. <laughs> so don't, don't ever underestimate yeah, the Americans' sure. ability to use a firearm, friend. But, the, no. but let's go back to those rules of engagement. So, so the American rules of engagement were something a bit different. They were, if you feel threatened. Now, that's an entirely different concept. Um, and as a result of those rules of engagement, you know, we'd often go out on jobs. We'd be in one house, they'd be in the other house. They would meet resistance. Right. And, you know, two people would be killed. And, and we wouldn't. And if this happened once, then you'd say, oh, it's just a one-off. But when this happens on a regular Over basis, you start to think, oh, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Now, that's not to blame those American troops, because it's not. They were acting within the rules that within they were given. Rules. But how, how many, how many de- I mean, how, how often did it happen that people killed, that, that American troops killed people out of fear? They were just like, oh, you know, they're freaked out. They're 19. They don't know. Yeah. You know, this is their first time. Never mind out of the country, out of their state. Yeah. You know, and now they're suddenly surrounded by, and they've been told that this yeah. is a, a worthy mission of we're going to take out the people who blew up the buildings in 9 11, you know, and this is, this, you know, you're going to fight for God and country, and suddenly you end up in this. In, in Well, exactly. And, and, you know, I know a lot of the guys. feel threatened, man. They feel yeah. threatened getting off the plane. Well, I, I know a lot of the guys who were infantry, American infantry in Iraq I've, I've met since, you know, and a lot of these guys were deployed for over a year. They were manning the same checkpoints you know, for over a year. They were going out patrolling the same street for over a year. Um, and when you're doing that job, and I used to do that job in Northern Ireland, I did that job in Afghanistan, when you're just patrolling, um, the, the sort of expectation can build, you know? Um, and if people are getting injured or killed around you, you know, the odds start to shorten, don't they? So... Right. Right. Things can become pretty intense, and and it, say for example, it's only going to happen twice a year. But well, you've been there two years. It, yeah. And say for example, one of your friends has been blown up at a checkpoint by a, a vehicle packed with explosives. Well, the next time a, a vehicle comes driving towards you, you're going to be you're going to be freaked out, you know. Yeah. And that's not to excuse what's what's happened, but it's to try and explain. Um, it's not to excuse what's happened, but I think then as soon as something goes wrong, it, it immediately gets blamed on the guy who pulled who pulled the trigger. Yeah. And it's it it's compartmentalized also to where it can you know it, it I don't know it, it reminds me of kind of lizard losing its tail as soon as you know the as soon as controversy grabs hold of it it's like oh Louis lost those guys and the lizard runs away and regrows its tail while those you know and 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 you know the heron will eat the rest of that tail why not so that's how you get rid of that problem so it's all it's inbuilt so that the people higher up don't don't I mean who got blamed who went to prison for Abu Ghraib exactly and and um. The, the the poor you know the poor woman who yeah. know, hor- did those horrible things and had her picture taken oh she's going down for sure yeah but that uh, went all the way up the chain and that's a common occurrence where um, atrocities or you know acts that you know war crimes have happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and it's the lowest possible rank that ends up doing the time for that yeah. um, I mean it's and, it, and, and that, that's, it's parallel I mean I know this is but it's parallel to the banking crisis how many people have gone how, how many of the CEOs yeah. Wiped out people's families, homes, you know, retirements. How many of them have gone to prison? While well, they're saying, "Oh, you know, we put Bernie Madoff away," you know, because he was obviously running a Ponzi scheme. But everybody else who was operating under the law, under the terms of engagement, nope, they're still they're still high and mighty. They claim this is a success. This they got medals. They got medals on their chest for this. So you come home. What made you decide to speak out? I think it basically came down to a sense of either duty or obligation. I thought morality had been removed from your consciousness by the process of becoming an SAS soldier. Well, 
You know, whilst I was a British soldier, I had definite ideas about what British soldiers should be doing. And I suppose a lot of what I was brought up on was the Falklands War. You know, that was the sort of war before I joined. And, uh, you know, that was fighting an enemy who had invaded British territory. You know, no, no, criticised no, the, the rights and wrongs of the Falklands War. This no, is what no, I, no, was, I, I, I was brought I get up you, but honestly, yeah. that's kind of a silly war to of, have. Of course it was, yeah. But, um, and then, uh, you know, all the way through my career, we were trained... A, or either trained to or, you know, the taught Falkland to. The war was not a silly war. It's very important to people. I understand there are many different angles. I just want to say that. For the record, anyone who's fought there, any veterans out there, you know, respect. But it was kind of like, you know, small small beer yeah. compared to Vietnam. But, but the thing about the Falklands War was that it was pretty much entirely one army against yeah. another army. Yeah, it was a chess um, match. Yeah, and what I was confronted in with in Iraq was... So we were trained to a very high standard. We were, we were like the, the best soldiers that Britain or the best unit that Britain had to deploy. And who were we deployed against? Mm. Civilians. Mm. Right. And for me, that was like, this isn't a fair fight. Right. You, know, the, you know, if I had deployed to Iraq and spent every day fighting insurgents, you know, and like real insurgents, right, you know, and, right. and it was quite obvious that Going these people... Going down the were, twisted, yeah. yeah. It, there were a line of... Who, Saddam, Saddam had a million tanks, they said, and he right. was going to come at us hard, and that's why we did shock and awe. And it turned out that, like, actually most of the tank drivers just bailed. Yeah. You know? Well, who knows where I'd be now. But the reality of what happened to me was that I was deployed against civilians. And, um, you know, whilst I was in Iraq, you know, we were living in the same houses that Saddam Hussein's mm. henchmen used to live in. Jeez. Yes. And, and we were using the same prisons yeah, that Saddam Hussein used to well, use. Because it's infrastructure that's already there. And I actually believe that we were, we were deployed against the same people that Saddam Hussein probably used to deploy against, as in, you know, sort of political mm. resistance. Political resistance to Saddam Hussein, political resistance to our occupation. That's who we were deployed against. You know, you might want to call them the insurgency, you might want to call them terrorists well, or whatever. It, obviously the, the, the players changed, but the right. uniform was the same. Yeah, as in the players like you were, it, dominating it, that country changed from yes. Saddam Hussein it, to us. But, and yeah. so you were just fighting a different set of... You're fighting a different set of political adversaries. No, I, I think we... You think you were fighting the same... It's possible that we could have been fighting the same people that Saddam Hussein was fighting. The, courage, the moral courage it would have taken to be a political opponent of Saddam Hussein, right? That the sort of person who was strong enough to resist Saddam Hussein would have been the same person who also resisted our occupation, right? So... Right. That's who I think we were going I after. I see. I see. So people who were basically resistant to tyranny... Yeah. We're going to Because if you were resisting the tyranny of Saddam Hussein, you would resist the tyranny of the, tyranny of the occupation, surely. If they're using the same, the okay, same tactics we, and well, the, and the, and the same prisons. But didn't we drop leaflets that said, hey, we're going to destroy your entire city in the name of you leading a happy democratic life? Did they not get the memo? Well, you know, I don't know if you've read much of the, uh, the sort of, you know, the WikiLeaks releases. Um, you know, I followed the case of Chelsea Manning closely over the last few years and... And she said in, a, in one of her court statements that, um, that she was tasked to um, look into uh, these people who've been detained. Chelsea Manning yeah. being? Bradley yeah. Manning. Yeah. Oh, Bradley Manning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, she was asked to look into this case where these people have been detained and work out, you know, what, what, the, what the cause was there. And sh she's looked into this and found out that these were political opponents of the occupation, nonviolent political opponents. They'd been detained, they'd been put in prison by the Iraqi federal police, I think it was. And she's gone to her superior and said, 
hey, these people aren't insurgents, they're not terrorists, they're no, Democrats. They're trying, to they're, they're, <laughs> they're trying to affect change through non-violent means. They don't agree with the occupation. Fuck off, go find me some more terrorists. That's what she was told, right? Right. So this is what's going on in this country, you know. You, the last thing you want is, is non-violent, democratic um, activists in that country. This is, this is the thing. I think we can all agree, and I think even American opinion polls will agree that you know, this was a colossal waste of time, money, lives, blood. And we pulled and we had to get out and, and we've done tons of damage. And we've, we've ruined this society that we were supposedly bringing, you know, peace and democracy. Or at least certainly what, we, what it said on the tin was not what we gave to the Iraqi people. And I think most people um, who are even, you know, minimally informed would agree with that. But... And it's being, you know, the Sunni insurgency is basically filling the void left by the, the American and British troops who've since evacuated. I mean, 700 civilians dead just, this, just in the first half of this month. Just in your personal opinion, obviously, what, is there anything that can be done to repair the damage? Should there be, should there be any kind, sh should America, should the Brits have any kind of part in reconstruction? Or is it just like, whoa, hands off, let it all kind of settle down and... Anyone walks out of the smoking crater, we'll give them a handshake. Well, let, let's roll this back a bit, because for a start, both Britain and America were kicked out of Iraq. We didn't leave. Um, Britain was kicked out by the Iraqi government did, in about 2009. Get, did you not get the memo? <laughs> I'm pretty sure we left as victors, I think you'll find. No, no uh, we tried to get the Iraqi government to sign a memorandum of status forces agreement or some, you know, some political term, I can't remember exactly what it was, which basically said that we're going to stay in your country and we want uh, immunity from prosecution. And the Iraqi government said, no, if you're going to stay in our country and you commit crimes, you're going to be prosecuted. And so we left. Because you wanted to drive over the lampposts. Right. So, so we need to, and this is an important point though, because we need to recognise that we were defeated in Iraq. We were told to leave. Right. This was a defeat? This was a defeat. The no, British no, 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 no. You're British... not listening to the spin, my friend. Well, we walked away as victors. Well, well, did we? So, so the British were defeated in Bajra. George Bush is, is, is in his ranch right now painting and, pictures of And the Americans were, were, were told to leave. Uh, now, in terms of victory, well, let's look who's in charge. We've got, a, we've got a Shiite version of Saddam Hussein in charge, a guy called Malaki, who is just as brutal... Uh, one of the reasons there's a Sunni insurgency at the minute is because how brutally this guy has, has um, sort of stamped on all dissent. Right. And um, let's look at the broader picture of what's going on because, you know, we, we can look at Iraq now and, we, and, and basically Iraq and Syria are sort of, the, the border there has almost disappeared. This is how sort of crazy this has got. In Syria, we are backing a Sunni opposition to defeat a Shia president, Assad. <laughs> In Iraq, the enemy of my enemy. In Iraq, we are backing the Shia president to defeat that same insurgency. Literally next door. How crazy is that? I mean, the, in I, Libya, in Libya, we backed the sort of Islamist, amazing. sort of Al Qaeda affiliated terrorists, and then a year later, we helped the French deploy to Mali to stop those same people coming into Mali. So, this stuff is crazy. It's well, what irrational. are we trying to do? What are we actually trying to do? Because you can lay this out and all the different players and you can draw strings. To, what is that? Is, every, is it every man for himself as far as governments and are concerned, as far as contractors are concerned? As far, I mean, it's such a complex web, but what is the actual aim? 
What is the actual aim of all this violence? What is it accomplishing? I'm not sure what it's accomplishing. It's irrational. How do we stop it? What, where, where is the handbrake on the whole operation? Well, I, I think we've got ourselves into a situation in the West, Britain and America especially, where we have realized that we are at this sort of the height, as it were, of our economic and military power. And it's only going to get worse. It's only going to go downhill. And we're kind of we're doing... We're die fighting? We're, we're kind of doing anything we can to kind of stay on top, you know. And, and, and it's irrational what we're doing. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to maintain our position as the, as the sort of the policeman of the world and the economic power of the world. You know, look what, what we're doing to our economies. That's just as crazy as well. Does that make any sense? And it's all this, this trying to, kind of effort to remain well, on top. Well, if you look at the end of the, the British Empire, that was a bloody, you know, that was Britain on top of the world. And as they decide, you know, as they kind of cut loose India and cut loose Africa and, and there was mass bloodshed, mass war. And that's essentially maybe what's happening now is America kind of loses its grip on power and the, and the penny turns. There's going to be this massive bloodletting and, you know, India and Pakistan and that border. And, and then, but then it'll kind but of this stabilize. Is a, this is a West centric view that you're putting. You're, you're saying that as, as the American empire sort of disintegrates, there's going to be an increase in violence. Wait a minute. Since the Second World War, we've had a huge amount of violence yeah, perpetrated on the Koreans, the Vietnamese, you know, the Malayans, uh, yeah. the Kenyans. You know, we could carry on naming cultures that have been yeah. decimated by our violence. So to say that, that this violence is going to increase, it's already a huge in the level. Short, in the short term. So what C happens? Compared what to what? Okay, you know? no, but here's the thing. Everybody goes home. All right, we're all set. Sorry, sorry. The Americans, we're, we got to fix our economy. We actually have 70,000 bridges that need repair and might fall down at any minute. You know, we got we got mass unemployment. We're all going home. Sorry, guys. Look, here's here. Whatever you need, just ask. We'll build a few hospitals and schools and we're out. And we just do a hands-off. The backlash is going to be, I mean, the co conventional wisdom says the backlash of these reconstructing cultures that are trying to build themselves out of the rubble, they're going to hate us in the rest of living memory. Their children, their children's children. Their ch no, I, th I think these people hate us for what we do. <laughs> so, right. so, so if we stop doing that, they'll forgive us? Like well, truth they, and reconciliation well, style? They, well, imagine this, right? Imagine this, it, it, you know, if, if we did say... Um, you know, we've already said we're going to leave Afghanistan, but imagine if we said that we are going to stop um, supporting Israel. Okay. Now, at the minute, I'm pretty sure that the Palestinians, you know, whether it's Hamas or the PLO um, and, you know, Hezbollah up in, in Lebanon there, they probably hate us as a, as a society or, or they hate, hate what we do. Now, if through political change in this country, we manage to force our governments to stop backing Israel in its persecution of the Palestinians, right? I think those people would kind of like us. Okay, but then they would descend on Israel with knives drawn. Israel would would launch a nuclear attack, and it. Well, would who be says who says that would happen? That's, you know, um, okay, but we we, we say we, that. We, but we, you can say that. But I, and again, I don't want to get into the Middle East because yeah, that yeah, is sure, another yeah, diabolical yeah, yeah. boondoggle. But you know, Israel itself is surround. I mean, they have their point of like you don't know what it's like to be have enemies on all sides. Like, we are bristling with weapons because we have enemies on all... There's something to be said from the Israel What they're doing is absolutely abhorrent, and, and, but for the Israeli people, like, yeah, we really don't want them coming over the walls, so we're going to all kind of arm ourselves. I'm asking, as far as Iraq goes, just limit... I mean, I know it's all different webs. Created this massive mess. Is there anything that we can do as, as a people, as a, as, as a nation, as a combination, of, as a coalition... God, I'm waiting for... I know everyone hates the UN, but can we please act like a planet here? I, th I think what we can do is this, is that 
we can't right the wrongs that we've committed in Iraq, okay? We, we've created an awful mess in that country. Um, what we can do is we can learn from our mistakes. And what we can learn from our mistakes is, is that, you know, we cannot solve the world's problems through military force. Military force is not the answer to any of our solutions. And you can even ask the generals in Afghanistan this, and they will tell you there is not a military solution to the problem in Afghanistan, which begs the question, what have we been doing there for the last 12 years? Okay, we need to start looking outside of these military solutions because what's happened within our societies over the last 100 years is that we've been infected through a whole load of different interests into believing that the answer to every problem is a military one. So that when we've got a foot and mouth crisis in the UK, the answer is to deploy the military. Right? When the fire brigade goes on strike, we deploy the military. When there's riots in the streets of Tottenham, who do we deploy? Oh, we should, you've, got, you've got advocates for deploying the military. Right? When there's a hurricane in, in uh, Louisiana. The fans. Right? When there's a hu hurricane in Louisiana. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, That's where the people are. Right. That's where, we the need man, to get, that's where the bodies are. We need to get out of this, this, this crazy idea that military force can sort out the problems that we are faced with in, modern, in the modern global society. How can, we, how can we force the hand of people who are ostensibly leading us to actually promote peace and not through violence? Yeah, I think for a start, um, that people need to need to understand and become educated as to what it's like to be on the receiving end of Western power. So when I left the military in 2005, one of the things that really got to me when I came home was that I was the the disparity between what I had experienced and what I was being shown on the TV and what our politicians were saying made me really angry and I felt this is where I felt this duty and this obligation to tell people. This was in 2008 so the war no, was... No, 2005. Oh, this, well, you left in 2005. Yeah and I started speaking in 2000, late 2005 um, and that's why is because I saw what people were being told back home and I saw what the public perception of what was happening in Iraq was so far away from what I'd been experienced that I thought people need to know, people need to know what's going on over there. So there's, I think that there's a disparity between um, what actually happens, and this is probably in many spheres of, of our society, it's not just about the military, it's probably banking and it's probably, you know, a whole load of things, education. There's a disparity between what actually happens and what the public think happens. And we need to bridge that gap. You came home and you spoke out. What did your, you know, your brothers in arms think about your decision? Like to, to, to actually promote peace, to found a chapter of, of, of an organization that promotes peace, that pledges non-violence. You know, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk to them and they're not allowed to talk to me, so uh, who knows what they think allegedly, about this. <laughs> allegedly, if you were to have these fictional people that you used to hang out with in a, in a, in, in, in a fictional world of war, uh, uh, on Call of Duty, you had some guys you used to play Call of Duty with, and then you checked out and said, you know what, actually this is not a good uh, use of my time. If you were to have spoken to them, how do you think they might, re might react? Well, I, I think it would be similar to a lot of the other veterans I speak to, and that is that it takes, certain, it takes people different amounts of time. But I think we, we, most veterans get to the same conclusion, and that is that, that what we were doing was irrational and immoral, and that it didn't solve anything, and it was the wrong thing to do. And I think that most veterans get to that point. It might take them years. They might hold on to that military right. ethos or that sense of self that they well, get like from being in uniform. It was, it was 
you know, it, it's part of your it's part of your DNA. Yeah. But I think that eventually people get to the point where they go when they come to that realization, that sort of epiphany, oh, that's what it was about. You know, that's what I was doing. How was it for you being cut off from these people who were essentially had your back from, you know, from the time you deployed? I mean, you, I, I imagine some very close bonds were formed. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked with the same guys for years on end, you know. Um, but the thing is, is that um, once I'd come to my decision not to return to Iraq, once I'd come to the decision that I couldn't take part in this anymore, almost immediately I was different to them. You know, we were no longer the, right. the same group. You'd, you know? fallen out, you, you'd, you'd come out of the flock. You'd come out of the machine yeah. to do your own and, thing and, and even suddenly if they were still a part of it. Yeah, and even if there weren't any personal grievances or personal disagreements, right. you know, it's kind of hard to maintain a relationship when your former comrades hey, it's still hard. think this. It's and, hard to have friends yeah. out, of, out of any workplace, you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I guess. And when you're not at work, then, you know, you, yeah. you don't go to the office party. Yeah, but it was also a culture that for me had had um, lost its sort of shine, you know. You know, the ideal right. of being a soldier, you know, the hardship, the, the hunger, the, right, the, right, the, right. the, the, the drudgery of it. And then you see, you see that all of that effort, all of that uh, dedication, is actually funneled and focused onto smashing up people's houses, you know. And pulling them out in the dead of night. And chucking them over to be tortured. And it suddenly loses all of its luster. You're like, you know, you know? What I'm done. It's like, imagine if you were a professional footballer and you were naive and, and, and you thought everything was great. And then you turn up, at the, you made it into the pro team. Right. And then you suddenly find out that all the guys are injecting steroids or injecting EPO. And, and you decide, I can't do that, you know. Right, and you're looking at it. Go, you thought it was something else, and, yeah. and then, you and then when it. you get when you finally get to the big leagues, you realize, oh, I'm fighting at the tippity tip of the spear. I'm pulling civilians out of their house on possibly dodgy intel. Yeah, in this country, a lot of a lot of folks in America don't don't know, and I certainly it was a big surprise to me that we all have to wear a poppy, and there is a huge pressure over here to put on to wear the orange poppy, the red, the, the red poppy. The red it's poppy. orange. Look at it. Come on, that's an orange poppy. It's a, anyway, okay, it's a red flower. I'm sorry, the people of Britain. I realize I come over here, but I'm a foreigner. I look over and I see it's orange. I, this, this is a red tablecloth. It's not this color. Why should, why should people wear or not wear the poppy? I don't think anyone should have to wear the poppy. Should discussion. have to? Well, it's a discussion we have within Veterans for Peace in the UK. So some of our members are, are D-Day veterans. You know, that, they were there in 1944, you know? Okay. And their perception or their idea about what the poppy means is completely different to what our idea is as younger veterans, you know, right. Iraq, Afghanistan veterans. And for them, they still ha hold on to that older ideal, um, which I think was prevalent after the First World War, in which that this was a symbol of loss. This was a symbol to remind people about how terrible the First World War was. And, and, and if it was still about that, then I would wear a red poppy. But it's but, passing out of living memory. But it's, it's not about that. it's come to represent... It's not about that. And, and, and the reason that I know it's not about that is because I've sat down with the head of remembrance of the British Legion. You know, these are the people who run the poppy appeal. And try and get them to answer a straight question about what the poppy even means. What, what does it notify? What, what does it mean to wear a poppy? What does it say when I'm wearing a poppy? And you ask them and, and you'll find it quite hard to actually get a straight answer out of them. They'll say things like, oh, it means many things to many people. You know? Where does the money go? It's a pound. It's a little plastic clip-on. It comes in three well, parts. It's I impossible think it's, to get it I to think stay on your it's clothes. It's more interesting to ask about where the money, money comes from. Because if you look at the Royal British Legion accounts, you know, a big funder <gasps> is British Aerospace. 
Britain's <laughs> biggest arms company. Now, what interest have they got in promoting the poppy appeal? We may not have guns on the street here, folks, but uh, we make a whole lot of them over here in merry old England. And uh, we're actually one of the world's biggest arms suppliers. Yeah. It's not actually it's about all... raising money through the selling of poppies. It's about promoting something. Because if you're spending 30 million on something, that's, you're promoting something. Now, what are you promoting? Now, if we look at the posters that are on the tube trains, yeah. they're not saying, look at war, look how bad it is. They're saying, support, support our troops. Poppy. Yeah, support our troops. Support and they're the also saying field. this. They're saying, if you go to war and you lose a leg, it's all right, we'll give you a robot leg and you'll be able to climb a mountain or you'll be able to row across the Atlantic. It won't be that bad for you. You will still be a hero. That is what is happening. They are sanitizing war. They are making the military and, and war, they're trying to make it as if it's a normal part of our society, as if it's something that we should be doing, as if there isn't an alternative. So it's not actually remembrance, it's just support of it the machine the that's, that's going on. It is the opposite of remembrance. It is a complete reminds... lack of remembrance. So here you have the poppy appeal, and you're saying that instead of getting people to remember the horrors and tragedies of war, which the original, your, your people who stormed the beaches in Normandy would, would say it represents, it represents something else entirely. It's turning the public more towards, uh, more away from pacifism and, and, and keeping the status quo it is, solving conflicts. It is promoting the military as if it is a hero, heroic um, institution. So would you and liken it to the... the um, to the commercials in America of the Marines standing with a sword, saying, you know, join the Marines, the proud, the few. You know, I went on the BBC recently to discuss the poppy, and I was persuaded by a friend not to make this comment, but I'm, I'm going to make it tonight. Uh, awesome. <laughs> during the poppy appeal, which lasts two weeks, maybe three weeks before Armistice Day, it used to be a week, and then it gets longer and longer, the Royal British Legion decided to, to give these, like, oversized poppy lollipops this is the only thing I can describe them as, to these children, and dressed them in T-shirts, and the, and the motto on the T-shirt or the legend said, future soldier, right? They also had a giant poppy in King's Cross Station that was huge. It was, it was yeah, about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? To me, and this is my own personal opinion, to me, they look like swastikas. That is what I think. Really? I think it, it, when you look at those children and you look at the, the, Nazi, the, the, the propaganda films mm. by Lenny Reifenstahl mm. in the 1930s and you see these German kids mm. running around in the fields and with the swastikas and all the rest of it, not really knowing what they're doing, not really knowing what the symbol means, you know, for me, that is how far we're getting. Wow, and that is quite and, the outrageous statement. Are you calling me a Nazi, <laughs> sir? <laughs> and, I, and I'll clarify this even further. When I, when I went on the BBC about this issue, if you were to go onto the television during that period, during that time of the year, 100% of the people wear the poppy. Why? Because they employ someone to make sure that everyone who appears on the BBC wears a poppy. Now, it just so happened that this show was on the radio. Only two out of six were wearing the poppy. <laughs> oh, no way. Right? Where was the enforcement? Surely it means the same thing. And, and what was really telling was one of the women who was sticking up for the poppy appeal and sticking up for this sort of militaristic version of remembrance, she wasn't wearing a poppy either. So it's a, it's a, and I just wonder if the Nazis wore their swastikas in private, or if that was just for public consumption. I think that I also think the swastikas were more than a quid. Generally, <laughs> yeah. they had much higher production values in Germany. I'm not going to touch that with a barge pole, my friends. But uh, you've been you've been watching Latopia After Dark. I'm Ian Wynn, the techno pagan octopus messiah, joined by the esteemed super agent, Mr. Peter Cox, and we've been talking to Ben Griffin, who uh, is a former member of the SAS, who has gone on to found the UK chapter of Veterans for Peace. Uh, he's a pacifist now. He's 
he's preaching he's preaching nonviolence. He's bringing it to the streets. He's bringing it to the people. Uh, ben, where can we find you on the web? www.veteransforpeace.org.uk. We will flash that up on the screens. Um, it's been an illuminating talk. It's been uh, it's been emotional. Touched, man. Touch me, big guy. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Ben. It's been it's been a pleasure and an honor to to have you on the show. Thanks, Ian.